This is Hear Her Sports, the female athlete podcast, and I'm Elizabeth Emery. Today's guest is professional adventure athlete Liz Sampy. She explores the world by bike, ski, pack raft, and whatever else is necessary. All this started when she quit her job to make a movie in Iceland. In addition to that trip, she's recently explored Guatemala, Peru, Alaska, and Puerto Rico. She's also a doctor of physical therapy, a coach, and a writer. In her conversation, Liz is honest and open about her fears and limitations. For example, with no shame, she calls herself a slow packer. We also talk about how expeditions fit into her life, what is home, how she creates consistency, even though she never really knows where she's off to next, her fierce commitment to her own growth, and her amazing new project, Rise Aligned, bringing movement and mindfulness to young people. Lately, I've been thinking about the meaning of adventure, so I took a great deal from talking to Liz. I'm also excited to soon share another episode where adventure shows up again, but in really different and also in really similar ways. But meanwhile, let's get started and meet Liz Sampy. You're so full of adventures that it's really exciting for me that you made time to talk. So welcome and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. I'm very excited to chat with you. I love your podcast. So, oh, well, yeah. thanks. And thanks for reaching yeah. out and tagging me on some Absolutely. of your posts recently. Yeah. Absolutely. So you describe yourself as a professional adventure athlete. Like, yeah. what, is that, what does that mean and what does it look like? Mm, what does that mean? <laughs> That's a good question. So for me, um, adventure sports are things like, um, you know, mountain biking, rock climbing, uh, pack rafting, things like that in the mountains. And so what I spend most of my time doing is creating um, my own multi-sport expeditions around the world. And then I get support for them. Um, through sponsors. And so my sports, my main sports are mountain biking or bike packing or fat biking. And then I combine that with backcountry skiing or ski mountaineering, uh, sometimes alpine running, sometimes pack rafting. And so, yeah, I just dream up these trips and I do them all around the world. Cool. That is so cool. So, okay. So you do all those different sports. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes that I really like was, I was quitting my job and going to Iceland to be in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> That was my first uh, foray into the expedition world. That was in 2015. I know. And that was such an exciting story. I really recommend everybody go read that just about how you had <laughs> made the decision to leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was a pretty, pretty crazy time. But I feel like that had been kind of coming. Um, I, I had been getting the feeling that it was time to shift in my life. And when that opportunity presented itself, I just, I couldn't say no. So I I jumped. (laughs) Did it feel like a big decision or was it just so easy because it just felt so right? Hmm. That's a good question. Yes and yes. I mean, it, it felt so right for sure. So it was, it was an easy decision in that aspect. I couldn't really ignore everything that my gut was telling me, but at the same time, I I picked up my entire life. Um, I had, I had a job in Crested Butte. I was working as a physical therapist um, full time in my off season from racing and then just, you know, kind of limited during the season. And I had a boyfriend. I had a house that I was renting and I basically had the perfect life, you know, by anybody's standards. I really had it made. And um, Crested Butte, Colorado is an amazing town. Um, I was racing. I was fully supported for racing. And uh, so picking up and leaving all of that was definitely a really big decision, but at the same time, it was like I couldn't not do it, you know. What was the attraction of, of making that decision? 
Well, so the biggest thing about going to Iceland to ride for the Sven was just really kind of opening my eyes to what was possible. Um, so the filmmaker, Anthony, who uh, his company is called First Tracks Productions, yeah, he just had this idea to make this film about fat biking and how you know it's revolutionizing the bike industry and you can use it to uh, go places that normal mountain bikes couldn't take you. And he just had this idea to dream up this project for this video to take athletes around the world to ride in these beautiful places. And he got it supported and he made it happen. And it just kind of made me realize like, holy crap, like the sky's really the limit, you know, just creativity and learning some skills and, and uh, just going for it. So for me, that was the biggest shift. And the biggest thing that catalyzed out of that trip was just that, that kind of world of infinite possibility. And so, you know, since then, I've been designing my own expeditions and executing them, uh, getting sponsor support for those. Um, it kind of kicked off my speaking career. So I, I do public speaking all over the place and uh, I write for magazines and uh, just kind of catalyzed my entire life trajectory as it is now. So, yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty big. <laughs> you touched on so many questions that I have for you, but let me let me ask. Yeah. So has it turned out to be what you expected? And if so, how and if not? What, how come? Well, uh, I think the craziest thing and, and the most important thing really is that I went into it without any expectations. I had no idea. I just knew that it was the next right thing to do. When you design your adventures, what are you looking for now, both physically and also metaphorically, I guess? Because I know that that's something that you think about based on reading your website. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I design my adventures kind of just as they come to me, uh, like this recent one, it was just an idea that popped into my head while I was driving. And, you know, I, I really do look for places where I can do multiple things that I love. You know, I mentioned all the different types of adventure sports that I like to combine. And that's pretty much anywhere you can do that stuff. So yeah, I get an idea and I start piecing together a route. And um, so physically, you know, it's just all the things that I love to do, just incorporating that into, into the entire trip. And then you know, for me, adventure is really a catalyst for every other area of my life, uh, you know, personal growth and my career or my business or my relationships. And I just I learn so much about myself and about the world when I'm out there. And, you know, it really doesn't take much to to achieve that uh, wherever you go. So, yeah, every adventure is is similar in those ways, you know, physically challenging, mentally and emotionally challenging and a learning experience. But you know, just a little different depending on the different sports that I'm uh, utilizing when I'm out there. Right. Uh, so talk a little bit about the trip that you just got back from. So I just completed a circumnavigation of Puerto Rico um, on as much coastline as I could string together. And I took a fat bike with uh, from Fatback. So Fatback Bikes based out of Alaska has been a longtime sponsor of mine. And they've been amazing. And they gave me a bike for this trip. And, and fat tires have... Um, a lot of flotation. Most people think about them for snow, but they're also great for sand. And so I was riding on the beaches and stringing together as much beach and coastline as possible. I also took a pack raft from Kokopelli. And it's like a real small, like almost inflatable kayak thing that you can roll up and I put it on the handlebar roll of my bike. And so when I would come to river crossings, I would inflate the pack raft and put the bike on the pack raft and paddle across the river to the other side. So that way I wouldn't have to go inland to try to find roads to cross the river on. And then I also did some paddling sections 
out of the ocean, which was funny. I mean, <laughs> first time I tried to launch my pack raft in the surf with my bike on it was just ridiculous. Um, you know, and I looked like a beached whale trying to jump in there uh, and paddle out before the next wave took me down. Um, so that's, you know, I did a lot of paddling stretches on the ocean, which was a little scary because I'm not an ocean person. I'm not real familiar with that stuff. But I did it, and I was camping along the way just on the beach. There's a lot of beautiful secluded beach in Puerto Rico, so I would make camp. And then I also have friends on the island, so I stayed with a couple friends along the way as well. And the biggest point of the trip was not so much the expedition itself, but I was also there helping some friends with some hurricane relief work that they've been doing and just trying to bring awareness to the situation in Puerto Rico that's still happening six months after Hurricane Maria blew through. So that's kind of the nutshell version of that. Right. Again, there's, I, my God, I have so many questions. Um, so tell me a little bit about what you saw in Puerto Rico and sort of maybe what stood out as, as, you know, the work that needs to be done still. Mm. So a lot, the, the thing that really surprised me is a lot of people in the coastal towns, like even the really touristy towns like Rincon, which is a world renowned surf town, don't have basic things like power and water still. I stayed with a friend who owns a, like yoga, surf, adventure, retreat, hostel type thing. And her place was completely destroyed by the hurricane. And she and her partner have rebuilt it, but she still doesn't have any water. So she can't really run her business. And the fact that this is happening six months after was just crazy to me. You know, I knew that up in the mountains, in the remote areas, some of this was going on, but I didn't expect to see it in the tourist towns and in the more populated areas along the coast. And the other thing that was really eye-opening is, just that aspect of people aren't able to run their businesses. You know, a lot of Puerto Rico's economy was based on tourism. And because of that, their savings are running out. You know, they're running out of money. They're not able to give people jobs. So people that work for them can't work. And a lot of people are, are or have already taken off to the U.S. so that they can find work. And it's pretty sad because that's their home. You know, Latin culture is very um, home and family and community oriented. And a lot of families and communities have been split up by some of them having to go to the U.S. to find work, whereas others are staying to try to rebuild life in Puerto Rico. Uh, so the biggest thing right now that I saw that was eye-opening is just the fact that a lot of people can't run their businesses, a lot of people can't work. So, you know, Puerto Rico really does need tourism right now, for sure. And it's still an amazing, beautiful place. And, you know, the people that come just need to be a little understanding of, of the situation that's still happening there and maybe do what they can to help if they're traveling to the area. Right. But this is the longest blackout in U.S. history. I mean, the town of Isabella, I was driving through there. I have a friend that lives there, and he and I were driving down there at night when I was visiting him. And the entire town is black, you know, and people are running their lights on generators. And so I don't know. I don't know what it would take to get the power and the water running, but that's kind of the basic step, you know. Right. I can't even imagine living with no water and power for six months. Oh, it's crazy. You know, people are getting sick from drinking contaminated water. You know, I have a friend that had water for about three days and it was brown. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's it's difficult, you know, and there's there's a lot more plastic bottle consumption than there ever was down oh, sure. there. And so, so that's becoming an issue as well and not having the resources to deal with that. And um, yeah, it was a pretty eye opening experience being there. And I was there a year ago as well. So I got to see it before the hurricane and then after. Mm, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and you did this trip solo. Mm -hmm. So what's it like for you to do these solo trips? And do you have any thoughts about that? 
Mm, yeah. So <laughs> this is actually my first solo expedition. Oh, so okay. I've done, yeah, I've done a lot of travel solo, but this was, and you know, a lot of like, obviously shorter things, solo, um, you know, big mountain bike trips or ski days or whatever. But uh, this is my first kind of larger scale expedition that I've ever done solo. And everybody that I met, you know, was like, oh, it's dangerous. Aren't you afraid? You know, and how do you do all this stuff on your own? How do you carry all this stuff? And and really the answer is no, I'm not I'm not afraid. I mean, everybody that I've met has been just incredible to me, um, has taken me in. You know, the people that I rode by that were doing the construction on the power lines or the underground lines, you know, would hand me up cold bottles of water and give me fruit and, uh, you know, things like that. And, you know, things can happen anywhere for sure. Um, you know, I'm I'm certainly not stupid. I don't go wandering down the back alleys of San Juan by myself at night, um, <laughs> these types of things. But, yeah, I just I never whenever I'm traveling alone, I just use the, the same precautions that I would when I'm here in the U.S. And uh, nothing's you know, nothing bad has ever happened. And I just meet wonderful people all over the world. And I really I really like doing the expedition solo because everything depends on me. You know, everything that goes right, everything that goes wrong, everything going through my head, all the decisions I make, it's just me. And, you know, that was a different experience for me on expedition. So, yeah, it was really, it was really interesting and fun. Do you think that your sense of who you are and your sense of identity has changed doing these big adventures? And particularly now that you've done this one solo, you know, like being able to take care of yourself and knowing that you can do it. Mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's something that I've built over the years. You know, I've always kind of had this adventure lifestyle. And, you know, I started playing in the big mountains of Colorado when I was 17. I moved to Colorado uh, immediately after graduating high school. And first thing I did is took an Abbey One course um, and learned about backcountry avalanches and started playing in the mountains. And, you know, so I've been building this over time. And for me, that's been the biggest thing is just building these skills and this confidence gradually. And, um, I forget who said this. I think it was maybe Tony Robbins or something, but it's, uh, the quote is confidence is the memory of past successes. So, you know, each time that I have even a little success, I, I take that and I hold on to it, you know, and I file it away and I build on it. And I've certainly had my share of failures as well. And, and, uh, you know, doing these big expeditions tests me in every single way. And, you know, whether when you're doing them with a partner and you've got that relationship dynamic as well with a teammate, um, that that's, you know, potentially difficult. And you find out who you are when you're interacting with another person in those environments. And, man, when you're by yourself and something goes wrong and the only thing you can do is look in the mirror, like, yeah, you really found out who you are. You know, the biggest thing for me that I've learned overall is that, you know, I'm a person that is fiercely committed to my own growth in every way. And, you know, I, I keep that in mind every time I'm out there and I slip up and I'm like, all right, I'm growing, I'm learning, I got this. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have an example of a test from uh, this recent trip? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the first the first day, um, you know, I, I'm working out the kinks or whatever in my system and, and I'm, a, I'm a really tiny person. I'm barely five foot two. And so I have a really tiny bicycle. And because of that, when I'm traveling by myself, I have to put everything on my tiny bicycle's frame. So, you know, the tent, the stove, the, my pack raft, my paddle, you know, my clothes, everything is on my bike. And so for me, the adjustment of all of my gear takes some time to dial in. 
and it's a little different with every trip. So on day one, I'm riding along and I'm, you know, having to stop a lot to adjust my gear because something's rubbing on the tire or the bike's handling funky because I've got the weight distributed wrong or whatever. And it took, it took me a while. Oh gosh. And then I lost my sandal. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't bring very much stuff or whatever. And I'm, I'm pedaling in running shoes in flat pedals and I had these sandals strapped to the back of my bike and I lost one and I, I noticed and I was like oh no I am not losing my sandal on a beach ride on day one so I went all the way back like 12 miles oh man <laughs> to find the sandal oh my gosh you know and it was like really and so I turn around and I'm riding and I'm finally on the coast and I'm finally making some time and I'm like I just want to ride forever you know and when I'm on my bike and I'm moving I love it so I'm riding and I'm riding and I've passed this camp spot or this, this thing that would make this amazing camp spot. And I look at it and I'm like, oh man, this is, this is it. You know, but then I looked at my watch and it was 4.30 and I was like, mm, I got like two more hours I could ride before I really have to make camp. And so my, you know, my ambition got the best of me and I kept going and yeah, I looked at my map and I plan these trips kind of as I go, just looking at Google Earth, I use um, an app called Gaia GPS, you know, to plan to look at topos, things like that. And I kind of had my eye on this area of beach that I was like, okay, I could, I could get there within an hour and set camp or whatever. So I kept going and I get to this area and it turns out this area was a national park and it was gated off. And I arrived there at about six o'clock PM and everything was locked up. And, you know, it was an area that was kind of more of a touristy town. So there were, you know, the hotels and the golf courses and things like that. And so there wasn't a lot of just like secluded beach to camp on, which would have been fine if I had more daylight, but I was running out. And just then the skies unleashed and it started pouring rain on me and it was dark and it was raining. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. You know, (laughs) what am I going to (laughs) do? So I had nothing to do but keep going. You know, I had I had a headlamp, but it wasn't like a really massive one. It wasn't very robust. It was just like a regular headlamp. But I put it on, and at that point, I can't ride on the coast because there's fencing. And so I'm on the road, you know, and, and it's pretty busy, and I'm cruising along. And I was just like, I got nothing to do but ride. So kept going. And then after about an hour, I decided I was going to stop for beer at a tienda, which is like a little gas station. Um, and, yeah, I've been riding all day, and I was I like, like I just want to stop for a beer. Yeah, I was like, I just want a nice cold beer right now. Like, I got, you know, I want to, like, figure out my next move while I'm sipping a beer. And, you know, so I pull over, and I'm sopping wet. It's like, I mean, in Puerto Rico, when it rains, it rains. And I'm just drenched. So I go into this tienda. You know, I leave my bike against the window so I can see it. I get a beer. I go outside. I sit down on the, you know, the little, like, walkway or whatever, and I just crack my beer. I'm drinking it, and it's still pouring on my head. (laughs) And I really had this moment where I was like, oh, I'm such a screw up, you know, like, why didn't I stop earlier? Why didn't I tie my sandal down to my bike better? Like, why didn't I dial in my equipment before day one? Why didn't I whatever, you know, like all of those things. And I, I've had, I've certainly had moments in my life where I've kind of succumbed to that like negative spiral of thinking and, you know, just letting myself get into this negative thought pattern but I learned through racing that that doesn't serve me ever. Like there, nothing good ever comes out of that. And so I've gotten pretty good. And I did this in this instance. I just stopped myself in my tracks. And I'm like, okay, what's the worst that could happen? What is the absolute worst that could happen right now? And I was like, well, I could get hit by a car and die. 
like, okay, that's, yeah, that's possible, but is it likely? No, you know, I've, I've got a good headlamp. I'm good at riding on the road. I'm good at getting out of the way. It's probably not going to happen. So what's the worst that could happen? And the thing I came up with was that, okay, if I don't find a camp spot in the dark and in the rain, I'll just keep riding all night. I'll just pedal through the night. And then, you know, in the morning, I'll find a place to sleep. And then I thought, all right, I can do that. I can pedal through the night. I've done it before. This really is not that bad. Like, I'm not screwed. Life doesn't suck. Like, it's really okay. So I sit there, you know, soaking wet. I'm sipping my beer and I'm just happy. I'm like, yep, the life's good. And, and right about then, this guy comes up to me and he's, you know, I don't know how old he is, 50s, maybe. And he asked me in Spanish if I had a place to camp for the night. And I said, nope. <laughs> I'm just gonna, you know, I'm just gonna keep riding and figure it out. And he's like, well, my wife and I own a house down down the street, and we'd love to host you for the night. Holy cow. And yeah, and, and he said, he's like, I'm a cyclist, you know, I, I love to ride my road bike, I haven't ridden much since the hurricane, but you know, we'd really love to host you. And I said, Okay, sure, thank you. So I followed him to his house, he drove his van slowly, I followed behind on my bike in the pouring rain again, still pouring, I could barely see his taillights in front of me. And, you know, we, we went all the way down to the coast and his house turned out to be this like beautiful big mansion right on the coast. And before the hurricane, he had used it as both a home and as an Airbnb for big groups to come and stay. And I was so shocked to learn that he still had no power and no water in this like pretty ritzy-ish tourist town. You know, and I, he, he just kept apologizing to me for not having water. He's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I wish I could give you a shower. I wish, you know, I don't have any water. I don't have any electricity. I'm going to plug in my generator so you can charge your phone and your GPS. And, you know, he just, he gave me this, like, beautiful suite, and I got to sleep in this nice bed and clean my bike and hang my stuff everywhere and get dry. And and uh, it was it was really eye-opening because it was my first real up-close and personal glimpse of a, what is still going on in Puerto Rico, I and mean, that blew me away. And then B, just the generosity of people, even under these circumstances. You know, he's apologizing to me for not having water. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I mean, that was that day one. It was like, whew, that was a lot on all levels. You mentioned that you are good about sort of, you know, like not getting down on yourself for errors of judgment. Mm-hmm. Are you equally good at, you know, celebrating your success? You talked a little bit earlier about sort of noticing your success. Yeah, yeah. Mm, That's a great question. Oh, so this is something that I've really had to work on. You know, through my years of racing, I like that's really where I've honed all my mental skills that I use in life. And in the success part, I really never focused on until very recently. And, uh, you know, with the like, obviously, you know, you, you win a race, you're like, Oh, great, I'm standing on a podium. Awesome. You know, and that lasts for five seconds, and then it's over. And I've, I've always been pretty good at saying, okay, what went right during this race? But it wasn't until really recently that I started realizing that, you know, celebrating our successes and really like filing away what we did to win, whether that's literally winning a race or just like winning what whatever you wanted to do is really important. It's even more important than, you know, than analyzing the things that went wrong. So yeah, just, just recently in the past, I would say like year or so, I've really been focusing on celebrating successes, even like the really small ones. So you talked about competing. Did you like competing? I love it. I love competing. It's so fun. (laughs) It's now very different though, what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, gosh, I competed for a long time. Um, 
I started as a road bike racer and I literally bought a road bike and started racing the next week. And I was just like, where have you been all my life? You know, it was so fun. Just so interesting to learn new things. And the strategy of road racing is really fun. Um, You know, I raced road bikes, all different disciplines, started racing mountain bikes, you know, raced all different disciplines of mountain bikes. And I still race some, you know, I really, I focus on like adventure style races, but I only do a few a year. And really what shifted that was Iceland. You know, when I I went to Iceland in uh, June of 2015, and I had just come back from a stage race in Guatemala, actually, in March of 2015. And I loved it. You know, it was my first time racing out of the country and loved it. But then, you know, going to Iceland and, and being in a situation where, you know, with expedition, there's no start and finish. You know, there's no course. There's no, nothing's known. You know, like when I, my first expedition ended up being in Guatemala, and I didn't even know if it was possible to do it. And same with this one. You know, I'm like, I don't know if I can circumnavigate Puerto Rico on a fat bike. Um, who knows? And uh, so that was the biggest shift was like realizing that I love the unknown aspect of expedition and racing is more known. So, you know, all of a sudden racing became boring to me after seeing that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so I, st- I still do it because I still do love it, but it's just not my focus anymore. Right, right. When you do these expeditions, you have no timetable? No. <laughs> Typically not. I mean, sometimes I do. It kind of depends. So... My first one in Guatemala, um, where a teammate and I attempted to fat bike um, the five highest volcanoes in Central America, we had a three-week time limit on that, and that was because, so I'd been living there in Guatemala that winter, and I was still, like, very heavily sponsored in racing that year, and so I had commitments back in the U.S. starting April 1st. I was going out for the Pisca stage race, and so, you know, we had a we had that three-week timetable because I had to get on an airplane and fly to a stage race after the expedition. But I never go anywhere for less than a month, really. So um, I'm I'm pretty pretty loose with my timetables. And do you have a sense of you know how many miles or hours that you'll ride a day? I mean, you you must have sort of some sense of how long it will take. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. So this trip was a little. This trip was interesting. So I've never really done any beach riding before, and so you know I, I'm I have such a great network of bike riders and adventurers around the world that I've met. And I really, for this trip, tapped into my network for that. My good friend, Greg Mattis from Fatback, he, you know, he's from Alaska. He does beach trips all the time. Um, You know, so he was a really good resource for me. And I asked him, you know, how far can you ride on the sand? And so for this trip, I, I just kind of estimated, like, I could probably ride about 30 miles a day if I was consistently on the coastline. And, you know, I knew that there would be some segments where I would have to get on the road because there's just no coastline. It's like cliffs down to the ocean. And so, you know, on those days, I was able to put more mileage in. So I kind of had some idea and I kind of thought, okay, it's probably going to take me somewhere between like 10 days and like 20 days, you know, just depending on how much I want to explore, how much I get lost. You know, if I get blown out to sea in my pack raft, (laughs) things like that. Um, but I ended up being 14 days on the bike for this expedition. And then, you know, I was in Puerto Rico for a month. So the other, the rest of the time I was doing the hurricane relief work and visiting a couple friends. So yeah, I kind of ended up right in the middle of my estimated time. And in terms of navigation, do you, like, before you get there, do you have some sort of mental map of the geography so that you don't sort of get yourself in trouble thinking, oh, I can go this way and (laughs) discover that it's a gigantic mountain between point A and point B? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, for the most part, you know, I, I use 
all my expeditions I've planned using Google Earth and Gaia GPS. So, you know, on Google Earth, it's Google Earth is just amazing. It's such a great resource because you can really zoom in and you can see like, oh, I think there's this little, I think there might be a trail there, you know, between the trees or whatever. So sometimes I get myself in trouble because I'll check things out and then they don't exist anymore. <laughs> and then I have to turn around, you know. In Peru, you know, my teammate and I really depended on a lot of local knowledge from, you know, these Incan people that were living in these villages. We were pioneering a whole new bikepacking route through the Andes. And so we looked at Google Earth and we'd plan like a few segments at a time. And, you know, we knew kind of where the little roads were, but then those, those situations, like I was just talking about, where you see this tiny little line going across a mountain and you have no idea what it is, you just ride, you know, you hit the village where you can see it from the town and you just ask people, Puedo pasar aquí con bici, can I pass here with a bicycle? You know, they say yes or no, basically, and then you kind of go from there. So, yeah, yes, I mean, yes, in a way, you know, Google Earth is really great for that. But then there are some times when you get somewhere and you realize that it's just not happening and you just you do have to turn around and that kind of kind of sucks. But it's part of the game. Right. Right. Yeah. So other than navigation and looking at Google Earth, how do you prepare for your trips? Yeah, I figure out what sports I'm doing. So, you know, which things I'm going to combine. And the biggest thing is I I learn any skills that I don't have that I'm going to need. So for Alaska, the expedition I did there was bikepacking and then pack rafting some pretty big Alaskan rivers that included some class three whitewater. And I'd never paddled whitewater in my entire life. I'm terrified of water. Like deep rushing water is like my mortal fear. <laughs> I don't know if I drowned it. I might have drowned in a past life or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm so scared of water, you know? And for this expedition, like, I don't know how this like evolved in this way, but our intention was to use a pack raft to do some river crossings, you know, super mellow things. And then all of a sudden it evolved and it morphed and all of a sudden we're running six days of class three whitewater. And I was like, oh, what happened? <laughs> so, you know, I, for that trip, I had to learn how to, how to run whitewater. And that was scary. And, you know, my teammate and I went to Alaska and we spent a month there before the expedition, literally learning how to paddle. And I met this amazing woman um, named Jewel Harrell, who uh, lives up in Alaska and McCarthy. And she's just this incredible pack rafter. She's also my size. So she um she taught us essentially how to read the river i didn't even know what an eddy was i didn't know what holes were you know she taught us all of those things and she was absolutely instrumental in that trip being a success because you know i didn't know how to run whitewater otherwise so you know the biggest thing in preparing is okay what what do i want to do here what are the things i need to do what are the skills that i do have that i can i'll need to put into play here and then what are the skills that i don't have what do i still need to learn you know, so that's the biggest thing. And then also preparation, you know, obviously you talked about the navigation and route finding. I just make sure that I have all the necessary components of gear, you know, that my my bike's gearing, you know, maybe I'll change my drivetrain if I'm running like too hard of gears and I'm going to be riding in sand. I really want super easy gears. So I'll change my drivetrain over um, maybe like Peru. I had to pack everything. You know, we were riding up around 16, 17,000 feet, camping around 14, 15,000 feet and it was freezing. So having to pack all of those layers. And for me, I'm not, I don't pack quickly. Like I am just one of those people that deliberates and deliberates like, oh, do I need this? Do I need this? Do I need this? Maybe not. You know, I pack and unpack 15,000 times. So a lot of it is just, yeah, dialing in the equipment that I'm going to need for it. And do you do training like strength or endurance or any of that kind of sort of typical training that you probably did for bike racing? 
Mm-hmm. I do. It's different though. You know, uh, training for adventure is, is different than training for racing. And so, you know, I used to train with a power meter um, and do really specific bike workouts, you know, focused on the results I wanted in endurance racing. So now I don't do that. I don't really use any metrics. You know, I, I have a Garmin where, you know, I can track my heart rate and, and I'll look at it and be like, oh, cool, you know, but I'm not as, I'm not focused at all on metrics anymore. And, you know, it's more about, again, what do, what do I need to do during this expedition and what skills do I need? So before Alaska, I did a ton of upper body work, like, you know, push-ups. I did, um, I don't go to gyms really. I don't live anywhere. So it's hard for me to have a gym membership anywhere. And, uh, so all my trainings, body weight specific, I do a lot of plyometrics. I do a lot of high intensity, uh, interval training. Um, I run a lot and, uh, that's partially for my expeditions and partially because I have a dog who's, you know, now too old to bike with me. So I run a lot with him and then just a lot of time on the bike. So yeah, I'm basically training all the time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun. I love it, you know, and it's, it's basically just anything that I'm going to need to do on that trip. I just incorporate into my training. Right. Is there anything that, that we would be surprised about that you need to be a good adventure rider? Hmm. Anything. Oh, hmm. Okay. So, well, maybe this isn't so surprising, but for me, something that has been really important is the ability to eat anything. Ah, yes. <laughs> yeah. The, and, and to eat nothing, honestly, like, oh, that was really surprising. So I, I learned that there is just, when you're burning so many calories, you're on the bike all day, there's just no way you're going to put enough back in, you know, to replenish your stores. And my expedition in Guatemala, I was hungry all the time, all the time, all the time, you know, and as a racer, I was really calculated about what I was putting into my body during races and how many calories and what type of calories and, you know, just like over scientific about it really, because that's what you need to do when you're racing. And, you know, so on this expedition, my body's just wanting calories like every hour because that's what it's used to. And sometimes it's just not realistic because you just can't put that much in and you can't carry that much food. And sometimes in these countries I go to, there's just not a lot of food available. And so I've had to actually train myself to need less on the bike. Um, and then when I do eat, it's just kind of whatever's available. So I've kind of developed this pretty hard, like rock hard iron stomach for just anything. And, uh, and so that's been really important. Have you had to eat something that was like just really disgusting for you? I like pretty much everything. I'm like not very picky when it comes to food. You know, uh, when you eat the same thing all the time, it can become disgusting. So Peru, there were a lot of stretches where we just didn't go through any towns for like five or six days. And, you know, we didn't have any opportunity to buy food. So we literally lived on quinoa and my teammate was a vegetarian, so he didn't do this, but I also had canned tuna. And when all you eat is quinoa and canned tuna for every meal for like six days, you know, and then you're doing this for like 40 days, you just, that becomes pretty disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> Has there been anything that you've eaten in one of your adventures that just you loved? Mm, well, <laughs> Puerto Rico. Oh, man. The food in Puerto Rico is ridiculous. It's so, so good. You know, I had the opportunity to stay with some friends and just some random people. I had this girl who followed me on Instagram contact me and said that she told her her old aunt, who's Puerto Rican, what I was doing. And they wanted to host me. They were like, oh, I want to meet her. I want to host her for a night. And so they came down and got me off the coastline, took me to their house in the mountains. And she prepared this like six course meal for me and homemade flan. Oh, my God. And uh, oh, my God. Yeah, right. Like. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I was like major big stomach after this. So that was, I mean, that was amazing on this trip, just getting home cooked meals pretty often 
from, you know, friends or random people. You know, that was that was really fun. I, just being able to eat some really good food there. Yeah. And meet meet people who live there, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Just really great. You know, every, people are just great all over the world. You know, they want to feed you. They want to house you, whatever, things like that. That's so, that's so nice. Yeah. And when you're cooking for yourself, what do you like to eat? Like, what's your favorite breakfast? I ask people that a lot. Mm, my favorite breakfast is a breakfast burrito, but I rarely make that on expeditions. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a hard expedition food. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? I, yeah, I wouldn't have any room for anything else because of the burrito fillings. Right. Um, yeah, no, I'm pretty boring, actually, on expeditions. I eat instant oatmeal. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's probably pretty standard. But, you know, it does the trick. I, I do nut mix like mixed in with oatmeal. So it kind of gives me some of that extra protein, extra fat. Like I really, I try to be good at storing up my calories during breakfast and then, you know, having those stores to be able to ride for the day on. And how are you training yourself not to eat on the bike just by not eating on the bike? Just by not eating on the bike. Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) (laughs) It really sucks. But yeah, just going for, you know, long. like typically for me, you know, like the way I used to be, I can ride for like two hours at any intensity and not need food. But then afterwards, I'm like, oh, I got to replenish my calories and whatever. And, you know, so I started just going on longer and longer rides with like maybe just a pack of peanuts, you know, and just stretching that little tiny pack of peanuts over a six hour bike ride. And, you know, and the biggest thing is for me making sure that I'm mentally sharp, even though I'm depleted in fuel, because, you know, you're mountain biking, you don't want to crash and hurt yourself and you don't want to make bad decisions. And so, you know, for me, I have to be even more mindful of that when I'm depleted. So it's been training for not eating on the bike, but then also just having that really like consciousness around, okay, I'm not fueled well. I also need to train to be able to ride this kind of terrain when I'm in this state. I I think you've just discovered why I'm not going to do adventure riding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it depends where you go, you know, like Puerto Rico, no shortage of food, you know, but like the middle of Peru, I was like, yeah, I was definitely depleted. So you just got to pick adventures that, you know, suit your purpose and suit, you know, your needs or your desires. Right. (laughs) So this all sounds great. How are you making all of this work? And I'm asking that in a lot of ways, like just the Mm -hmm. financial aspect, certainly, which I want Mm -hmm. to start with, but also then Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk about like logistically, how are you making it work? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So financially, um, I have a pretty diverse um, stream of incomes, I guess. So my background is I have a doctoral degree in physical therapy. So, you know, for a long time, I was a physical therapist working in traditional healthcare. And that's kind of like, I love that, but I'm not, I don't love the healthcare system, but I still love teaching movement. I love, you know, helping people connect with their bodies, things like that. So I've taken my expertise in physical therapy and I've brought that into the online coaching world. So, you know, I coach athletes returning from injury. I coach people who are really wanting to achieve optimal wellness. Um, I coach a lot of adventure sport athletes who are both competitive and non-competitive. Um, you know, some of them are racing and some of them just want to be able to, you know, feel strong and healthy and fit to do whatever adventures they want to do. Um, so, you know, coaching is a lot of it. I write, uh, for magazines, I write for different sponsors, websites. So, you know, my writing is a source of income. Sometimes I do like little writing contracts. So like last summer I was doing some writing for an online magazine and that included both writing under my name and also like ghost writing for some companies. So that, um, you know, my sponsors, support me financially. Some of them are products, some of them are financial, some are both. So part of my income comes from that. 
And gosh, what else? I do mountain bike skills coaching. So I coach for the Ladies All Ride series. Um, I also coach through my own company, Vital Motion. And so, you know, coaching mountain bike skills clinics is something I can do whenever I land somewhere. And yeah, I've got a good enough network at this point that it's pretty easy for me to pick up coaching work wherever I'm at. Yeah, so those are a lot of income streams. And then, you know, I also sometimes do short term physical therapy contracts. So lots, lots of things make it work financially. Right. And honestly, like I'm not rolling in the dough, you know, like all these things bring in small amounts of money. And, you know, my expenses are, are pretty few. I live in a van when I'm in the US. Um, I don't pay rent. I don't pay utilities. I don't have a car payment. Like I, you know, I, uh, I live pretty simply. So I'm able to just kind of focus on making enough money to do what I love to do and, and, you know, keep my needs met. And, uh, yeah. Was that an adjustment? Mm, yeah, it was, but it was something that I've been kind of working towards for quite a while. So I used to be, gosh, seven years ago, I used to be a normal person. I was actually married. <laughs> I owned a house. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, yeah. So you know, I had a lot of stuff, and and you know, my husband and I split up, and and I moved out, and I realized how much crap I had. I was like, where did this stuff come from? You know, and so it's been like seven years of just paring all this stuff down, and you know, just living more simply, living more simply, living more simply all the time. And then you know, in 2015, when I moved into my van, that was kind of like all right, you know, I'm already living with pretty minimal expenses and, and minimal needs. And, and now it's time to just like really go for it. So, um, you know, I, I have these, these real good friends that actually I'm staying with them right now in Grand Junction that have let me use a corner of their basement to put some things in that I, you know, really didn't want to get rid of. And, uh, and that's really my only home base is this corner of their basement. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, everything else is pretty, pretty minimal. So it, it was an adjustment, but it was, you know, it was over the course of a number of years. Right. Do you have a philosophy yeah. about stuff and home and, you know, like, how do you view home? What's your definition of home? Mm. <laughs> I love your questions. <laughs> so good. So, yeah, I mean, I, I tell people that I, I live nowhere and I live everywhere at the same time. And it's, it's kind of a funny concept to grasp, but you know, this is something that I've just kind of recently realized is that like, I really do feel rooted wherever I am. Yeah. I travel someplace and I completely fall in love with it. And I just, I feel like I'm at home and I feel like I kind of put down little roots wherever I am. But then, you know, I also just have the ability to pick up and leave whenever I want. I a lot of people ask me on these expeditions, especially in Puerto Rico, because I was interacting with more people like, Oh, are, are you here on vacation? Are you here on vacation? And at first I was kind of like, yeah, I guess so. Like, I guess, you know, <laughs> but then after a little while, I'm like, I'm actually not here on vacation. Like, this is just what I do. This is just my life. You know, I just go places and do things. And then I go other places and do other things and, and whatever. And uh, yeah, I just, I really feel like I'm at home anywhere I go. And that's, I love that feeling. I love it. <laughs> my guess is that there's very little that's consistent in your life. Is there something that's consistent that sort of grounds you or roots you or, or maybe that's not even necessary? Mm, oh, it totally is actually. So I, I, I have a really consistent meditation practice. I have a consistent movement practice that doesn't involve my bicycle. Um, I, I have a dog actually that has traveled with me a lot and now he's older and, and he stays with friends more recently. But when I'm in the US, he's always with me. Previously, when I traveled a lot, I kind of didn't feel grounded as much and I would start to feel kind of chaotic at times or overwhelmed. And, 
and these types of things. And, and I still experience that on occasion, but you know, I, I have these grounding practices that I do just within myself in the space that I'm in and, you know, connecting to the place, connecting to the earth. I mean, the earth is consistent, right? Like I'm always able to stand on the dirt, you know, and I'm always able to breathe, like breathing's consistent, you know? So it's like these really little things that can actually make a really huge difference in feeling grounded wherever you are. So I've really tapped into that over this past year and that's been pretty, pretty amazing. Have you been meditating consistently for a long time? No, not a long time. Um, you know, I've kind of, uh, I've kind of used some elements of riding my bike as meditation in the past. Like road biking is really meditative. Oh, I think you know, it's totally pedal strokes. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And you're a cyclist, you get it. Yeah. yeah. So that's you know that's been a form of meditation for a long time. Mountain biking for me, not so much because it's really dynamic. The terrain's always changing. You have to be really focused on what you're doing, and and it's still a state of flow. So in a way, it is. But for me the ability to just literally sit or lay quietly in one place and meditate has been just really developed over this past like six months actually yeah it's it's pretty new but it's I just dove right in I was like okay morning and night every day wow you know and uh, yeah and it's 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 really been pretty life-changing actually and uh, I love it it's not, you know, I'm not perfect. Like sometimes I'm running in the morning. I like, I like wake up too late and I'm like, ah, you know, whatever. But like, I always, always, always take even just like a little minute to just like check in with myself, you know, like, Hey, how'd you sleep? How are you feeling this morning? You know, and just like take some deep breaths. And so even that's a little bit of meditation, even if it's for just like a few minutes, but I typically prefer like 20 ish minutes of meditation and then just like 20 ish minutes of whatever type of movement feels good to me, whether that's like stretching, yoga, dancing, whatever, mm-hmm. morning and night. When did you start seeing results from meditating regularly? Like how, how many weeks had to pass? You know, because of the point I was at in my life, I was I was going through some pretty intense personal challenges. And because of that, I, I just dove in super like full on right away. And so it was pretty quick. I mean, it was within like a week. Hmm. So, yeah. And then, you know, the more I did it, the more results I saw. So it can be pretty fast. It's just kind of how it's like anything, you know, like if you decide to learn a new sport or a new skill and you just kind of dabble here and there and you're like, eh, eh, you know, it might take a while. But if you just dive in and you're like, I'm doing this, like you can progress pretty quickly in anything. Right, right. Yeah. In the bios that you sent me, you mentioned that you're in the process of launching a nonprofit called Rise Aligned. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that? It sounds really exciting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love this. I'm so excited. So <laughs> oh, this is actually, uh, this came to me in a dream on an airplane about a year and a half ago, um, on the way back from Peru. And it's based around a couple different things. It's based around the concept of alignment and movement. So as a physical therapist, as a coach, I've taught physical alignment for a long time, you know, moving your body in ways that are the most efficient, the most effective, that's going to prevent injury, things like that. So I've been teaching physical alignment techniques to people for 10 years. More more recently, over the past few years, I've really come to realize that alignment works in every single system. So, you know, you create alignment in your body, you create alignment in your mind, you know, with what the things you want to accomplish, um, the skills you need to learn, create alignment in just kind of your, I guess you could call it your soul or just, you know, what resonates with who you are and then creating alignment in your life. So essentially designing your life the way that you feel the most fulfilled, the most inspired, the way that you want to live. And that's different for everybody, right? But 
I feel like a lot of young people, kind of late high school, early college age kids, don't get this message a lot. You know, they don't learn how to tap into their own intuition. They don't learn how to tap into um, the, just the things that they're passionate about, the way that they actually want to live their lives, what they maybe want to create in the world. You know, everyone asks like, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? But, you know, what about the question, who do you want to be when you grow up? Who do you want to be now? What do you want to create? And, you know, so that's something that I'm really passionate about in myself and also just in, in bringing to the world. So, you know, what, what Rise Aligned is really going to be about is teaching, teaching and, and not even so much teaching, but just facilitating an inquiry into alignment for young people. And so for me, that always starts in the body. So starting with movement, starting with connecting with your body, you know, if you're, if your mind and your body are disconnected, if you're just not really grounded in, in your body, you know, it's really hard to, to create alignment everywhere else in your life. So, you know, teaching people movement techniques, uh, teaching people mind body connection, and then uh, weaving in, you know, messages about creating a life by design. Who do you want to be? What do you want to create? Things like that some of it is going to be just plain old movement uh, teaching. So when I was in Puerto Rico, some of the things I did was I went around to patients, you know, people that were in their homes and they hadn't had a lot of consistent medical care since the hurricane and they haven't had any physical therapy or any movement training or anything like this. And so I was going in and I was teaching these people and their families how to help their person move in a way that's pain-free, in a way that's uh, just going to be the most effective for what they need to do, things like that. You know, if you're at a crossroads in your life, whether that's because you're a young person going out into the world, or you're somebody who's been affected by a disaster or a personal tragedy, you know, we have the opportunity to rise in our lives and, you know, in our bodies. The best way to do that is just to create a life and a body that is in the most perfect alignment with who you are and how you're meant to move. That's so awesome. I was going to ask you what your advice for young people, but you certainly covered a lot of that, but is there anything else? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a lot of it. I mean, for me, the biggest thing is just, I, I really tell people, and this is what I do, this is how I've designed my entire life is, is really connect with how you want to feel, you know, like your deepest desires. Like, do you want to feel nourished? Do you want to feel powerful? Do you want to feel abundant? Do you want, what, do you want to feel inspired? Whatever it is, you know, that you want to feel. And then what are the things that will make you feel that way? You know, what do you, what brings you alive? What's your highest excitement? And, you know, just connecting to that. For someone who is really disengaged with that concept, you know, like has no sense of what that's about or has never felt it. How do you, how do you sort of bring that to them mm -hmm. or allow yeah, them to find it themselves? Exactly. So that's, that's really the key is, everybody's got all the answers inside themselves. Like I'm not going to give anything to anybody. You know, my, my aim is just to kind of, to guide a little bit. And so it really, really goes back to the connection with your body and the ability to quiet our minds. You know, we all have these like minds that are, they're brilliant. You know, our minds are brilliant, but they're also, we can get into that monkey mind state where, you know, our brain is just blah, 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 you know, and it's really hard to just turn that off. But for me, the best way to do that and what I tell people to do is to move your body, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure you get it. Like how many times have you been out on a road bike ride and you're just moving your body, you're feeling good. And all of a sudden you have this flash of inspiration or insight or something that comes to you that's not like thinking. You oh, know? I'm smartest on my bike. Totally. Yeah. So yeah, I tell people just get out of your head and get into your body and move in whatever way feels good to you. You know, whether that's running, biking, yoga, 
dancing, you know, whatever it is, you know, just connect with your body and then, and then also create that space to get quiet, you know, so that could look like meditation, you know, for me, it's like, after I, I've been moving and I've been having these, these insights or whatever, I'll, I'll just create that space after my movement to sit down or lay down and just take some deep breaths and really scan my body and just think, okay, how do I feel right now? Like, what do I need to know? Is my body telling me anything? And uh, just getting quiet and calming the mind is just really the biggest first step, I think, to tapping into being able to feel um, what you really want, what your desires are, what you want to create, where you want to go. And it's even hard for me, like my, my thing is in the morning, you know, what's my first instinct, of course, freaking pick up my phone and check Facebook, right? Like everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, since my my meditation and movement practice is so important to me, and I know that if I don't do it, I'm going to feel chaotic. Like I tell myself, do not pick up your phone. I don't let myself pick up my phone in the morning until I've, you know, had my my time, you know, like, and so many people like, we're so giving, you know, we're such like a wonderfully giving society as humans. And, you know, we want to wake up and we want to feed our children or feed our dog or check our phone, make sure we didn't miss any messages, whatever. We're just always giving our energy out to the world, which is great. But what I've really found is that if we don't fill our own cup first, we can't really actually give to others. So, you know, for me, it's like every morning I'm going to have my time and give my body what it needs for just 15 or 20 minutes before I pick up my phone. And that's, that's a really, really intentional thing. And I've had to work on that. So that's cool. That's very yeah, cool. it was, it was hard. And I still have the urge to pick it up and be like, how many likes do I have on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I resist. It's all training. It's all discipline. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else before we wrap up? I don't want to take up your entire day, which I could. I guess the biggest thing is, you know, like, when I tell people about what I do and my adventures and, um, and everything, the first thing people say to me is, Oh, I could never do that. You know, like, Oh, I could never do what you do, or I'm not a pro or I'm not whatever, whatever, you know? And like, what I tell them is like, I am not special. Like (laughs) I'm a farm girl from Minnesota, you know, like I didn't grow up running up mountains. You know, I didn't grow up like planning big expeditions in the wilderness. Like I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, you know, and, and, uh, just created, what I've created because I've just followed my desires and followed my passions and I've learned the skills along the way. And that's possible for anybody, you know, like whether it's adventures, whether it's starting a business, building a house and starting a family, whatever, you know, it's like everything seems so far away and unattainable, but all we really have to do is just take one step at a time. Like what's the next right thing to do, you know? And I didn't, I wasn't born this way. I didn't get here overnight. You know, anybody can achieve whatever they want. It just starts with taking the first next right step. Well, thank you. That's 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 great. That's beautiful. I love it. Thanks. I love it. Well, I would seriously be able to talk to you all day. I hope that we can have maybe another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Have a great bike ride. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a really wonderful day. Thanks. Talk to you soon. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to you for listening. Tell your friends about the podcast. Spread the word about fantastic, strong women speaking up and doing amazing things. Please subscribe on iTunes and encourage people you know to do the same. It really does help more people find the podcast. There are some fun episodes already in the can, so keep listening. Thanks to Agnes Studio, the blog, She Rides Her Bike, Gold Mines, and Leap Strategies for super support and partnerships. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Bye-bye.
Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.